Hey folks, uh, as always, I want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Uh, it's really been uh, a delight to hear back from everybody about how they've been enjoying the recent episodes. And I want to take this moment, of course, to remind people that there is a Patreon that helps support this work. You know, take a moment and think about how much you've been enjoying this, how many episodes you've listened to, and, you know, think about supporting the work that I'm doing here. It uh, certainly supports me in my life, as well as supporting my efforts around transcriptions and accessibility for this podcast. If you support the podcast at any level, you immediately get uh, early access, which is a day before or longer. The episode drops to the rest of the world. If you support at the $5 level, you get access to a growing library of bonus material, a new episode uh, for every single regular episode that drops, which is, you know, somewhere around a 10 minute wrap about practical applications or other ideas that came out of the podcast. And finally, if you support at the $10 level, starting in April, there's going to be a new group for members at that level where they will have a chance to have more conversations, dialogue. I'm going to invite guests and where possible, have them be a part of that. Uh, at least for a while after the episode drops. And, you know, it's going to be a lovely space to share and explore all of the content that's going on, as well as other bonus things that comes up. Uh, Patreon.com slash The Hermit's Lamp. Every support is appreciated. On with the episode. Welcome to another episode of the Hermit's Lamp podcast. I am here today with Enya Cho, uh, who is an Harisha practitioner and priestess. Uh, she runs a wonderful, uh, well, now Facebook group, but also uh, websites called About Santeria, uh, where there are lots of great conversations about the traditional practices and approaching the traditional practices of uh, Orisha traditions, especially as centered in Cuba. Um, and, you know, I think that given what I've seen more and more online and in other places in conversations with people, this conversation about how do we approach a traditional religion as outsiders uh, is one that I think is really important, you know, and I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings. I know I had a lot of misunderstandings or misconceptions about what things might be like. Um, and I think that, you know, these dialogues are important and obviously for my own personal tradition. Um, but I also think that some of these conversations apply to any other traditional religion that you might approach as well. So, you know, any, for those who don't know you, give us, give us the lowdown. Who are you? You know, what are you, what are you up to? <laughs> Hi, um, my full Ocho name is Enyachoya, which means the yellow dress of my mother. And that's because I'm crowned to Oshun. You know, Oshun is always associated with the color yellow. I was crowned in Palmira, Cuba, and my lineage is called Palmira lineage. It's called the countryside or a campo in Cuba to distinguish it from maybe what you might find in Havana or Matanzas. But Palmira is one of the traditional centers of the Lukumi religion in Cuba. It was founded by 
the descendants of slaves who were taken to that part of Cuba to work in the sugarcane fields. And after they were emancipated, they founded their own town, Palmira. And it has three of the most uh, traditional and oldest Lukumi religious societies in Cuba, the Sociedad Santa Barbara, Sociedad San Roque, and mine, uh, the Sociedad El Cristo, which is associated with the Sevilla family. A lot of people who practice Ifa know the name of Pundo Sevilla or Pablo Sevilla, famous babalaos from Palmira. And that's my religious family, the Sevilla family. So um, I guess that's probably who I am, religiously speaking. And I've been running this uh, this website about Santeria for around six years, I think, as an educational website that Aleos, outsiders can go to to get basic questions answered. And just recently, I created this page you referred to on Facebook so people can discuss some of the ideas. So I'd like to invite anyone who's interested to take a look at that and welcome to the community if you decide to join us. It's a good community. I think lots of very uh, knowledgeable priests in there and good conversations are taking place. So I'm happy with that. Yeah, I think it's great. You know, it's a, there's lots of really knowledgeable priests, which is, which is a great part of the equation. Um, but they're all, at least all the ones that I know, you know, personally or through online interactions, they're all really solid people as well, which mm-hmm. I think is a really important part of that conversation too, right? Because mm-hmm. just, just because people know something doesn't necessarily mean anything anymore you know there's a sort of like this <laughs> distinction that can happen between those things and so that's one of the yes. things that i also uh dig about that space and why you know why i'm actually hanging out there as opposed to Thank other you. spaces why maybe where maybe people know stuff but uh their character isn't as inspiring to me so mm-hmm. um so one of the things that i find really interesting is this is this idea of the distinction between what's going on now in a general way and sort of how stuff was a little while ago or how things still are in certain parts of the world right so mm-hmm. you know, you're from your your practice and your connection your your family is in Palmyra um what what's it like there to sort of be born there and live there and practice this religion from from that place you know from a sort of real traditional community structure Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel really fortunate to have had glimpses into everyday life there. I've been going there for over 20 years. And because uh, of my uh, work, I've been able to to go and spend considerable amounts of time, like three months at a time, six months at a time, because my university here in Washington State has uh, an exchange program with the University of San Fuegos. And as an academic, that gave me a license as, you know, the United States is not always that easy to go to Cuba. But because of my academic license, I've been able to go to Cuba pretty often, spend a lot of time there, and really get to know the people very well. So I've literally seen a whole generation of people grow up. And I know what it's like from their point of view to be born there and be surrounded by this community. And I think it's important for your listeners to understand that this need that we have as outsiders, as people living in a different culture, we're always thinking, how can I get in to that community? Or how can I get into the religion? How do I find my way there? It's always this destination or goal that people are looking for. 
And the big difference to me is that for people in Palmira, you're already there. You don't have to look for anything. It's all around you. It's in the air you breathe. And that's not to say that every single person that lives in the town is initiated in the religion. They're not. But certainly their neighbors are or their cousin or their aunt or their grandma, people down the street. It's everywhere around you. And so if you have a concern, if you want to go get a reading done, you don't have to wonder, where can I find a babalao? Where can I find a santero? They're right there. And everybody knows them. And there's a lot of accountability. Because literally these same people have lived there and their ancestors have lived there for 150 years. And everybody knows who everybody is. Small town in Cuba, you don't have secrets. And I think that that makes it a really different experience because I've seen babies in their mother's arms at drumming ceremonies. Because our ceremonies are drumming, for example, tend to be open to the public, people who live in Palmira. Everybody comes and the whole family comes. So you have babies that can't even walk yet in their mother's arms who are keeping time to the rhythm of the drum. And they are totally comfortable in that environment and they grow up with it so that, you know, I've seen four-year-olds playing with their little stuffed animals, their bunny rabbits and teddy bears, and they're acting out an ocha ceremony that they've seen their parents do. <laughs> mm. you know, um, so when you grow up with it all around you, that takes away a lot of the mystery. So it's not secretive. It's not hard to find. It's there. Mm -hmm. And our tradition in Palmira tends to be, for the most part, that we don't initiate very young children. Most people, if their family is religious, everybody in their family tends to get initiated, but they always leave it up to the individual to decide once they reach a certain level of maturity. And so typically you'll find people not getting initiated until maybe they're in their early 20s. Mm. Um, that's changing. People now are doing more younger children, but we believe that it's not everybody's destiny to be initiated that has to be something that's determined on an individual basis but there are lots and lots of families where half the brothers and sisters are initiated half aren't and the cousins show up and they help out you know with the cooking and the cleaning before and after the ceremony so everybody is involved in it and everybody feels connected to it whether they're initiated or not it's very comfortable. It's very organic and natural yeah. to just have it there. And that's such a different experience from what most of us outside Cuba mm -hmm. experience. I was in, I was in uh, Matanzas last year um, playing for Egun for my, uh, for my godmother who passed away. And, mm -hmm. you know, some of the things that struck me, you know, were... Um, I mean, first of all, everybody knows everybody, as you say, right? You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're driving around the, the 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 city with my godfather, and he's like, "Hey, pull over!" And he leans out the out the window and has a conversation with somebody, and then we keep going. Um, mm -hmm. and secondly, you know, I don't know about architecturally in Palmyra, but in Matanzas, you know, there are no there are no windows on the windows. The doors <laughs> are open, you know, right. because it's hot and you want those breezes. And so we're there you know, doing the, the formal meal, um, you know, that's part of the ceremony and neighbor, neighborhood kids who, who people know, or maybe their children have 
of people who are there drift in, you know, kind of like say hi, act like kids and run out the back and go and get some sweets or some food where yeah. the food is out and they leave, you know, we were doing the drum in the, in the front room and there's no, there, there's the windows open and people are just walking mm-hmm. by looking in and people are walking by you know, and they just start having a conversation with somebody who's there that they know. And it's, it's very different than, you know, my experience of other things, which are it's done in somebody's house, probably in their basement, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and where do you, where do you see it? You don't see it anywhere. Right. Mm -hmm. As opposed to there. And and also, as you say, driving around, it's like, you know, you drive around it's like, Oh, is that another drum going on over there? Oh yeah, it is. You should go by. Oh, is that another drum going on over there? There you go. You know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exactly, it's exactly like that in Palmyra. And um, it's hard to hide a drumming ceremony when the houses are so close together and all the doors and windows are wide right? open. No, for and sure. yeah. And everybody kind of spills out into the street and that, that interaction you were describing with the kids coming and going and people coming in and out all day. That happens literally every single day. When I'm in Palmira, I feel like I'm sitting in my godmother's house, but it's like a train station with people coming and going and just, hey, what's going on? And, what you know, anything going on? And they have, you know, you maybe know this expression in Spanish, radio bemba, which means word of mouth, how the word spreads really Mm -hmm. quickly from person to person. So if somebody is going to have a drumming or somebody's got an OSHA birthday party or whatever is going on, everybody in the town knows everybody. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're very likely to just go by and drop in and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that this sort of leads to this idea of what does it look like to, you know, as, as I said, is what are we looking to arrive in? I mean, really one of the things that we're looking for whether whether we understand it or not, when we start out, is we're looking to be welcomed into somebody's family, right? Yes. Like we are we are looking to build a relationship and a connection, hopefully, to the community, to those people. And you know, I was I was at an event, you know, I've been I've been hanging out with the Orisha community in Michigan where I was initiated. Um I don't know, 19 years now, 20 years, a long time. And, you know, we were having a conversation and somebody was like, like mentioned something. I'm like, I was like, yeah, well, I was there when I helped make that person. I helped make that person. Mm-hmm. I helped make this person. I was there when this person was made, but I wasn't made yet. And, and there's this like longevity of connection, right? Mm-hmm. And whereas a lot of people um, sometimes come to these things with this idea that you're going to uh, just arrive and be welcomed in, just arrive and suddenly everything's great, or just arrive and you suddenly can, you know, get access or get recognized or whatever. But it's not really that way. I mean, ideally it's not that way, right? No, you're absolutely right. And, And I think that a lot of this has to do with our understanding you know, we use the words in our religion, we talk about aleos, outsiders, strangers, literally. And people in our culture tend to find that a little bit offensive, like they think it means that they're not welcome. Mm-hmm. But in Cuba, that's not what it means. We simply um, differentiate for ceremonial purposes, the people who are initiated, the olorishas, they have a certain role, a certain function, they do certain things. And if you're not initiated, 
you do other things and the roles are not identical. There is a hierarchy there, not based on your worth as an individual or how smart you are or anything else. It's just, are you initiated or not initiated? If you are, go in that room. If you're not, go in the other room, right? Mm, yeah. And I think Americans, and I don't know, maybe Canadians as well, people from outside that culture have a really hard time with that because we here in the U.S. where I live, we have such a consumer mentality and we identify something that we want and then we think, I'm going to get it. I'm gonna, it's my decision. It's my choice. I'm in control of the process. Here's my money. How much does it cost? Here's the money. Okay, now I have it and it's mine. And they expect some kind of immediate acceptance or now we're the same. Okay, because I paid my money and I'm just like you. And mm-hmm. that is not that is not how it works. No, exactly. Yeah, and that, that sense of entitlement that can be there is is definitely a problem. And and I think in two ways. One, you know, I mean as I know you do too, I get contacted by people sometimes who are like, I need you to crown me. And I'm like, <laughs> my friend, I am not I am not like I don't even know you. Why right. would I? Why would I choose to incur a lifelong, and perhaps more than this lifelong connection with you as being responsible for your spiritual well-being and to some extent your practical well-being forever when I've never even met you? You know, so mm-hmm. that's that's a challenge. And then the other side of that, of course, is you know, in in a world where we're approaching people that we don't know who are you know, not a Leos, but complete strangers regardless, you know, there's not that community knowledge of like, you know, you should, you should go see, you know, whatever, right. The SUB, mm-hmm. because I think they, I think they could be a good person for you. I think they could guide you Oh, This person's a renowned diviner. You should go see them. You know, you don't have that connection. And so all of these people, no matter what we think we know about them from seeing them on social media, they're all strangers too. And that's where mm-hmm. so much of those problematic situations where people will be like, sure, yeah, absolutely. You've got the money, just give it to me. We'll be good, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it's not good because those people the, the on the other side are just looking to take that money and take advantage as well. So, yeah, it's a big yeah. problem. It's a big problem. And I think that a lot of it has to do with the fact that people just get too impatient and they want it now. And a lot of times... They don't even know why they want it and they don't even actually know what it is. Mm. (laughs) And so the process always, in my opinion, has to be organic. It has to happen in kind of a natural way, right time, right people, right place. Um, And you can't force it. I think that that's the key thing. You're not in control, Mm -hmm. really. It's going to happen when the orishas and your egun want it to happen and the more you push and resist and then try to get it all to go your way i think you're just creating a lot of trouble for yourself yeah one of the uh expressions that i you know i didn't have the the pleasure to meet yamagwa but a very famous alocha who's connected to my godparents um one of the expressions that i hear they used to say a lot was no no what you need to understand is orisha is the boss here and mm-hmm. that, we as people, we have our say and we get to make our choice. And it doesn't mean we have to 
accept everything or, you know, like we, we it's, it is a relationship, but at a certain point, the Orisha needs to be the ones that we trust to dictate and to find the right time and space and, and all of those things, you know, and it's like the proverb, you know, every, every head is looking for its home. You know, not every, not every person, not every house, not every situation is a right alignment for anybody. Right. Like, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe someone comes to Palmyra and they're like, oh, this actually doesn't fit for me. And not pushing there, not trying mm-hmm. to push ahead one way or another makes the most sense in that situation. Yeah. Um, my own experience, I think, is is a good example of that, because I went to Palmyra for the first time just because I was invited to somebody's house for dinner. And I had absolutely no intention of making Ocha there. I, it wasn't even on the horizon for me. I knew about the religion. I liked it. I was interested in it, but kind of from an academic standpoint. And I went to dinner at a, a colleague's house, a professor from the university. And she introduced me to another professor from the university, her neighbor who lived the next block over. And he turned out to be the head of the Sevilla family, the Babalao, who was running El Cristo at that time. And I just became friends with that family and visited them for years, just dropping in and having coffee and chatting with them. And I wasn't showing up on the doorstep all the time saying, teach me about the religion. I want in, help me. You have to be my godparent. It it happened in a very gradual way where I started getting readings. I think most of us um, began that way where we get readings that guide us. And then over a long period of time, years, you know, little by little, it came out that I needed to get this or I needed to get that. I got my warriors. I got Kofa de Orula, you know, and then it wasn't until I, I got Kofa de Orula, my side in Ita, uh, was that I eventually needed to make Ocha. And that was really stressed. Eventually, one day before you die. And um, my godfather said, think about it. Don't do it now. You need to kind of wrap your head around this and think about what it means and take your time and do it when you're ready. And um, I don't know, about four, three or four years later, it just happened like serendipity. That's what we're talking about here. These things just kind of all come together magically. Almost, I got a, a sabbatical from my university. I got a a scholarship, a grant that paid me to go to Cuba to do this research project I was working on. And that turned out to be the year I was able to make Ocha because I was able to be in Cuba. And that's the experience I wanted with those people that I had known for many, many years. And it just happened in a very natural way. And if someone had said to me, you know, 15 years earlier, oh, yes, you're going to go to Palmira and make Ocha, I would have said, What's Palmyra? I don't even know what you're talking right. about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that it's, you know, even for me, I I went looking for the for the religion. You know, I had been, um, you know, explore doing Western ceremonial traditions and initiatory groups for a long, long time, and had sort of hit this place where I felt like I really needed to connect with something uh, deep and traditional, you know? And so I was trying to figure mm-hmm. out what that was and, and 
you know, where this was in a, a pre-internet era, you know, it wasn't like you could just jump on Facebook and find a bunch of things. And, mm -hmm. and eventually, so I found my way to the community in Michigan. And, you know, even at that, although I received, you know, my, my uh, Alekes and my warriors, um, you know, I still was involved in that community for, you know, eight, nine years before, before I was crowned, you know, and it's a sort of, mm -hmm. again, it was one of those things like, yeah, someday you should do that. You know, you should, you should start putting aside your money. And when you have the money, you should think about doing it. I was like, all right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I notice with people I have conversations about now sometimes is they get to the end of the reading and they're like, okay, but what do I need to receive? When do I need to make Ocha? And yeah. one of the questions that I often return to them with is, well, is your life horrible? Is your life a hot mess? You know, <laughs> are, are you sick? Are you like having horrible problems? Are you like, you know, like your reading doesn't say you're magically afflicted. Is there something going on where, where mm -hmm. you know, your life is a disaster and you need to be saved from it? They're like, nope. And I'm like, then just keep living your life. And as you mm -hmm. need things, stuff will surface if you need things. You know? Exactly. And I think that that's a, another thing that, you know, we don't understand. I didn't understand fully myself even though i was aware of it going into it is this notion that um within the tradition these things are you know medicines of a sort right they're there yes. to either provide uh very specific kinds of guidance or specific energies or to counter specific energies so that we can live our life to its you know to the fullness of our destiny uh as opposed to being things that we can collect or accumulate or they give us status or those kinds of things you know that's exactly right that's how i feel about it too and and i think it's hard for people to understand that maybe they don't want to hear it when they're so enthusiastic and so determined that this is going to be their path that's what they want to do and one of the things that i hear a lot and i think you do too is is people get frustrated and say okay you're telling me to be patient but what am i supposed to do just sit here and wait they want like tips you know how can i do something to make me feel like i'm moving forward and so i actually do have some suggestions of like if you're determined that you want to learn and do more with this religion i have some kind of practical tips that might get you started i'd love to hear them <laughs> I break down things into little lists, but um, I think many people begin with kind of an academic approach to it. So they read books and you mentioned 20 years ago, we didn't have as many resources as we have now. Now we have the internet. We have lots more books than we used to have. Um, we have all these religious forums on Facebook and many people are offering online classes of this kind or that kind. And all of those approaches are limited. I think that's the first thing I want to stress is that there's nothing wrong with reading books. There's nothing wrong with reading stuff on the internet, but there are lots of buts <laughs> attached to that, lots of limitations. Because yes, there are some good books out there. Fortunately, thank goodness, people like Willy Ramos, you know, yeah. is writing really good books and David Brown and other people who have the credentials and the, the research methodology down and what they present is accurate and 
very good and very helpful. And that's always great to read. But I remember um, when I first started looking for books on a religion, there are some really wacko books out there because now anybody can publish a book. It's all self-publishing. And you might go on Amazon and look for books and you might find 20 different titles and you just don't know which ones are good and which ones are not good. And you can read the reviews, but those are always like written by somebody's friend and they don't necessarily tell the truth. So you have to be careful when you're reading books to, first of all, evaluate the source. Who is this person writing the book? You know, and if they say, um, you know, magic moon goddess has been practicing 300 world religions for the past year and a half, and she's the author of this book on Santeria. I would not necessarily consider her a reliable source because <laughs> if she's not even initiated, what does she know about the religion? Right. Yeah. But if it says, you know, Willie Ramos is a professor of history who wrote his thesis on, you know, Havana in the 19th century and whatever. And he has written these books that are published by university presses and published in scholarly journals for me, that's an indication that those are serious things that I can read. And even after I read them, though, I remember when I first started reading some of those books, like David Brown's Santeria and Throne. It's a great book, but I didn't understand it. I mean, I was reading it, and I'm like, half of what he was talking about, I had no idea what any of that meant. And it took me years to realize that I was going to have to piece together all of this information I was accumulating and put it into some meaningful pattern because to my knowledge, there's not one book like a Bible that you just go to and it tells you everything you need to know. Every book will tell you a little bit of something, but nobody's going to tell you the whole story. And you have to decide how does this information fit in with other things. You have to analyze it. And the same is true, especially on the internet, because there is some good stuff on the internet, but there's also a lot of terrible misinformation and well, in the I religious think, forms yeah i think the same. one of the things that's that's you know really important to understand is not not only is there not one book that can tell you everything it wouldn't even be possible mm-hmm. right like the scope right. of this tradition is so massive and when you start talking with someone who's you know uh, an elder, you know, or a, a, a knowledgeable babalao, whatever, right? You know, someone who's lived in the in the tradition for such a long time. The amount of things, you know, that that come up that are just different in different situations. You know, I was oh, I no. was at a ceremony recently, and and the person running it was like, "Oh yeah, you know what? Your your name's Obatilami, right?" Because I I know the song for that one, and so he, they sang the song that that relates to my Ocha name, which mm-hmm. maybe I'd heard it before and nobody had highlighted it, but I never picked that up before because there are so many songs for Shango. There's so many mm-hmm. songs for everybody. There's so many stories. There's so many you know pieces and ceremonies and and ideas and advices that that it just expands uh, in an unbelievably uh, sophisticated way. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they say the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. (laughs) It truly is a lifelong, lifelong process. But, you know, reading books is not a bad place to start, given all these limitations that I've talked about. 
Because I think the positive thing about it is that way at least people who are interested in burning to know something Mm -hmm. feel like they have a little bit of control. Like, oh, I found a book. I'm so excited. And that's great. But it's limited. And eventually, like you mentioned earlier, this is about belonging to a community. And so sooner or later, you have to get out of the world of books and meet people in the religion. It must be a personal experience and you must become part of a community because you cannot do this on your own. And you know, that's full of challenges as well, because then you have to say, how do I meet these people? And are they legitimate? Are they going to cheat me? Is this community a good fit for me? You have to consider things like your physical proximity, because if you're like my Ocha community is in Cuba. And when I made Ocha there, I had to decide, am I going to be able to go back to Cuba on a regular basis? Do I have the money to be able to travel? Does my job allow me to go there whenever I want? You have to really think about these things because if you don't live near your Ocha community, you've got to travel. You know that. Mm -hmm. You also have to think about the language and the culture. And this just completely confuses me. I hear about people who go to Cuba, they don't speak Spanish, they know nothing about Cuban culture, they make ocha, they're there for a week, and they go home, and then they say, I don't have a good relationship with my godparent. I'm like, well, who is your godparent? I don't know, some guy that lives in Havana. Mm -hmm. If you don't speak the language, if you don't know the culture, how can you fit in that community? How can you learn anything? And like you mentioned, you also have to consider the character of the people. Are they, you know, uh, upright people? Are they honest people? Do they have good reputations in the community? Mm-hmm. And I've been talking just about the Lukumi practice, which is my practice. But for a lot of people who are at the very early stages, they have to decide what branch of this religion do they want. A lot of people want traditional Yoruba and they want to know about those practices in Nigeria. I don't know about that. I can't teach you that. I'm Lukumi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's also another, you know, a whole other branch, right? I mean, but the problem mm-hmm. remains the same. You know, you you and I would likely have equal, you know, we'd, we'd be next to ground zero by just dropping into Nigeria or wherever. Yeah. I'm just going to go hang out with some traditional people it's it's a roll of the dice right you just never you know hopefully it's good but you never know you know given given that every other day i'm befriended on instagram by a nigerian prince <laughs> who wants to help yeah. remove the curses on me if i'll just send them a bunch of money by wire transfer you know it's yeah. like that stuff is out there and it's everywhere and not only that but our actual ceremonies are different and we have the same basic root but like i I only know how to do Ocha ceremonies in Cuba. And if I went to Nigeria, I'm sure they do it differently. And I can't just walk in there as a functioning priest and expect to be accepted in this community because I don't know anything about them and they don't know anything about me. So, you know, before you waste time reading a million books on Lukumi and then you decide, I don't really like Lukumi, I want to be traditional Yoruba, Make that decision first, I think, and focus on what resonates with you. Well, I think one of the other things that I I would say if you're reading books, and, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this uh, as well, is the more more a book on Orisha tradition talks about what you 
what you could do or should do on your own, the, the more likely I am to think that it's not helpful at all. You know, there are oh, some absolutely. books out there where they're like, you know, do this superpower Orisha bath. And it's like, well, probably not. Right. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the, these things come from ideally come from divination or they come from the ashe of an elder who speaks about, they come from, you know, an Orisha in possession and, and they don't come from like, huh, I really wish that this was different. Maybe I should do this thing. Right. Right. I honestly don't think a reputable priest would write a book like that. I'm sorry, that probably sounds really harsh, but the books that I value... Please, please feel free to be harsh. It's, it's fine. <laughs> the books that I value are written either from a historical perspective, maybe I'm just a history buff, but that really, really helped me to understand how this religion came to Cuba and how it transformed and who our founding mothers and fathers were and how the religion spread and having a historical foundation to me has just been so valuable. That really helped me. And I also like books like the most recent series that Willie is doing where there's a whole book that's just about Oshun and another book that's all about Obatala. And he talks about these are the songs and these are the prayers and these are the herbs and these are the characteristics of Oshun and these are the different roads. That's great. Um, because it gives you more profound insight into who that Orisha is. But it, I never, ever have found a book helpful that starts telling you, okay, you're not initiated, but you can still throw the shells and learn how to read them and do these spiritual baths and make up all this stuff. And mm. you don't need a priest and you don't need to be initiated. If I say that, I throw that book in the garbage. Yeah, it's really fair. Yeah, I think, you know, and, and one of the things I think is also significant in understanding tradition is one of the things about understanding initiation, especially, well, even even becoming, just taking on somebody, uh, like becoming someone's godparent, you're becoming part of, in a way, um, that lineage, right? Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. lineage is tied to those people and to those places, you know, and, you know, my, my lineage goes back to Matanzas. And so when I was there, you know, with my godfather, he took me to meet certain people and certain Orishas who are, you know, close to the sort of origin of that. And mm-hmm. there's this living legacy of those connections from, from me to my godparents you know, to their godparents and so on, all the way back to the beginning of this tradition as it stands now in Cuba and then beyond into sort of the the reaches of history. And that's really significant. That's a really important part of this tradition because without that lineage, in some ways, nothing happens, right? Like what happens without that lineage? Exactly. You know? Right. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. I I feel so grateful to be able to go to a place like Palmira and you, when you go to Matanzas, same thing is like, you have a very clear sense of this is where it comes from. I'm connected to this. And it gives you such a grounding that it, I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just really powerful. And I want to connect to something that you said earlier, because when you were talking about, you know, somebody just contacting you out of the blue and saying, I want you to be my godfather or, 
please initiate me immediately. Here's the money. Um, I think it's important that people understand that priests have to be selective about who they choose to initiate because it's a big responsibility. Like you said, it's a lifelong commitment. And, and if I don't know you and you turn out to be a crazy person, I'm bringing you into my religious family. I'm bringing you into my house. and You're going to disrupt everything and make everybody miserable and cause trouble. I don't want that. And so there really is this kind of trial period. And, and a lot of people who want an immediate access are so put off by that. And they'll say like, I went, you know, I went to somebody's house and I asked them to be my godfather. And he said, no, well, that's because he doesn't know you and it's premature. And it's like you said, why do you need to be talking about making ultra right now? There's nothing to indicate you need that. So this idea that priests should be available 24 seven. And a lot of people think like, Oh, our religious communities or our centers or wherever we do our, our, uh, our ceremonies, they imagine it like some kind of community center or maybe a Christian church where there's this physical building and there's a little office attached and the priest gets paid a salary and sits there nine to five and receives people. And to my knowledge, I have never seen anything like that in our religion. We do our ceremonies in our homes most of the time. And I'm not going to invite a stranger into my home. It's my home. Yeah, That can really be off-putting to people who are new to the religion, but they need to understand that you have to gain someone's trust. They just think they're protecting themselves. Like, how do I know my godfather's not a crook and he's cheating me? Well, that is a concern. You, you need to know that. But at the same time, the godparent is looking at the potential godchild saying, is this person a good fit? Do I want to do something with this person? Yeah. And people don't like to be judged. They think, here's the money, take it, give it to me. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. Yeah, I think I think it's uh, it's kind of like asking somebody to marry you on the first date, right? Exactly. <laughs> it doesn't make sense. And if the person That's agrees, exactly. well... 99% of the time you should be really suspect about that, you know, because that person's got some issues too. Go deal with those issues, right? Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Or or it could be like, we have never met. We just know each other from Facebook. Do you want to get married? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's such a, it's such an interesting, interesting modern phenomenon, right? Yeah. And another thing that's connected to this that I think is really difficult for newcomers or people who are looking for the way in is they don't understand that some knowledge in our religion is only meant for priests. Mm-hmm. It's not open library. Here's all the information in the whole world that anyone can access. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, it's been passed by oral communication from generation to generation you learn it from your elders you learn it from hands-on experience some information you simply cannot know before you've been through the ceremony yourself Mm -hmm. so when somebody comes with a million questions and the the potential godparent is saying like i can't tell you that or that's not for you to know or that's something only priests do people get offended by that and think oh it's secretive they won't share their knowledge sure yeah. 
Well, and I think it's one of those things, you know, and also, depending on what we're talking about, I think it's fair for people to, for, for the keepers of the tradition to honor the tradition by, mm -hmm. by managing where that information goes, right? And if they think you're going to be online telling all your friends about this and that, and, you know, uh, making, making Arisha, Arisha baths and selling them on the internet when you're not even initiated or like whatever, you know, like, mm -hmm. then, then probably they're going to hold that back as well, right? It, it needs to, there needs to be the evidence of respect over time, right? Exactly. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. Going back to my little tip sheet, though, after, yeah. you know, the recommendation of get to know people in the religion, Sometimes people don't even know how to do that because they say, where I live, there isn't anywhere. It's not visible or I can't find it. So sometimes you have to start with kind of a, a, just a wild goose chase in the sense that you might look for some public events that are advertised, maybe on Facebook or in your community. Somehow you might look for like a, a tribute to Oshun at the river that's going to happen on such and such a date and everybody's invited. You make a point to go to that and you can meet some people. Or maybe if you get invited by somebody you know to an Ocha birthday party or a drumming, you know, definitely take advantage of the, those kinds of invitations that come your way. If you don't know anybody in the religion who could invite you to something, you could even just start with like universities in your city or cultural centers, because a lot of times they'll have performances of some kind that's related to Afro-Cuban culture. And there might be dance, you know, uh, Orisha dancing, or there might be drumming as performance. There might be lectures, films, scholars who work on that, uh, on that topic. And that's a place that you can meet people. If you just go to the performance or the dance, you might meet somebody who would then invite you to something. So I think that's a pretty safe way to do it if you can find something like that to attend and just keep going. You're going to see the same people showing up and you'll start talking to them. They'll start talking to you. That's a good way to meet people. Botanicas. A lot of people will say, oh, I went to the botanica and I met somebody. I, I, I think that can be good. I mean, there are some good botanicas, but there are also some shady ones. So, so many shady ones. Yeah, so many yeah. shady ones. You have to be really, really careful. You can't just walk into a botanica and assume that the person behind the cash register is an olorisha. You know, maybe they're not. And you can't just go in there and buy a bunch of stuff and, you know, be very, very careful about the botanicas. It's That's possible you could meet somebody legitimate there, but it's very likely you're going to meet a, a person that wants to scam you. And, you know, the thing is, is like, you know, because I, I run a store, right? It's not a botanica mm -hmm. in the sort of sense that it focuses on uh, Arisha stuff in that sense. But, I mean, it's it's not that dissimilar either. I sell candles and herbs and whatever, uh, as well as a bunch of other stuff. Um, but I think that that's where also do some reading and know what it's really about. Yes. You know, and what, what like, what things are and so on, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And so that you can, like, kind of like ask the person some questions and see what happens, you know, is to find that yes. people would, you know, um, especially there was a time where I sold more Orisha specific stuff and people would come in and they'd start asking me questions of that stuff who were initiates. And then they'd quickly realize like, Oh yeah. Okay. This guy's initiated. He knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. Cause you could have a certain conversation about stuff. And that doesn't need to mean that 
you need to be initiated to know about that but you could you could be like oh well where were your initiatives you know oh, who were you initiated oh what's, mm-hmm. what's your lineage what's your you know or, you know what's your what's your risha what's your know, whatever things that can kind of mm-hmm. come up and you can gauge things from that person that way and sort of feel them out a little bit Absolutely. And by all means, don't walk into a botanica with a wad of money in your hand and say, I want to get initiated. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's true. That's not going to work out well. Stuff, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. Or they'll say, like, my uncle can initiate you. Step in the back room. Go ahead. You know, do right it. now, let's go. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sadly, that has happened. So you have to be careful. I think um, social media is similar in the sense that you can get, be on these religious forums and you can meet some great people on social media. I met you on social media. You know, and there are definitely some good connections to be made on social media, but you have to be so careful. And don't just put out there like, hey, I'm looking for a godparent who wants to initiate me, you know, because there are also charlatans on sure. social media. You don't know who's, uh, who's going to grab you. So for me, the, the most reliable starting point, sooner or later, you've got to get to a point where you can go get a reading, a consulta. And by that, I mean by, by an olorisha or by a babalao who will use the traditional divination tools of orisha to tell you what's going on with you. I have nothing against tarot cards and psychic readings and all these other things, but that's not how you find out what's going on with the orisha. Exactly. Do you agree? And even mm-hmm. even where you know I've created and, and made an Orisha tarot deck, that mm-hmm. is not for marking Orisha things. It is for exploring and understanding the philosophies and the ideas. Mm-hmm. You know, exploring how some of these worldviews overlap with the worldviews of tarot. But if you go and somebody marks says, "Oh yeah, yeah Sean goes your your Orisha with my tarot deck," you should get up and leave, mm-hmm. and maybe even and ask for your mm-hmm. money back. Because it's not what it's for. It mm-hmm. doesn't work that way. Yeah. And and I think that finding a good diviner is so crucial. That's, to me, a turning point. Because if you can find a good, reliable, honest diviner, that person is going to be able to guide you. Even if that person doesn't turn out to be your godparent, that person is going to be able to hook you up with the right people if they're a member in good standing in their Orisha community. And I think that, you know, having these kind of warning uh, signs to look out for, that's very important. You need to go understanding that if you sit down with a diviner, you've never been there before. The first thing he says is, oh, my God, something really horrible. Your children are all going to die unless you make ori- you know, make ocha right now. If somebody starts pressuring you like that and trying to manipulate you and make you be really afraid and you have to be initiated right now, that's a warning sign to me. Yeah. Because one of the things I think that people, there's not, in life, there's not always solutions. But one of the things that I understand now at this point in my journey is, you know, I've, I've been through some very hard stuff, you know, like last year, my business burned to the ground, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's not mm-hmm. easy, right? Life isn't always easy. But, you know, when when I got a reading about that with my with my elder, it was so comforting, even though there's a ton of hard stuff that's still in front of me. And there are ways mm-hmm. in which we can approach difficulties, and there are ways in which we can, you know, make a bow, like do little ceremonies and offerings or whatever, 
to make our situation better for almost every situation. And mm-hmm. so it's one of the things that I think is, is fascinating and different is that there's not, there's not, sometimes there's a miraculous transformation, right? Sometimes there's something mm-hmm. you do and it just turns everything around, but there's always something to do, even in difficult times and mm-hmm. approaching it with fear or putting fear into the other person's heart. It's one of the worst things that I think people can do, you know? And mm-hmm. so, you know, divination should come with solutions as well. Advice things yes. to mitigate it. And even if it comes, you know, we have this sort of, uh, uh, orientation where it comes where it comes what you brought from mm-hmm. heaven meaning you can't change it it's like yeah but you can ease it you can find ways to mitigate your suffering you can find ways to fortify mm-hmm. your strength there there are solutions and so if people are working to make you afraid oh it makes me so mad when, when that happens so yeah. don't fall for it yeah. and and the solution doesn't have to cost two thousand dollars all the mm-hmm. time yes there are lots of solutions that are much less expensive. Like we always just start out with fresh water, you know, omitutu and coconuts and fruit and things like that. Uh, and, and a lot of times a simple ebo and adimu, you know, some kind of prepare some rice pudding or bakala or whatever, mm. you know, it doesn't have to be $2,000. Yes. So anyway, I think that if people get to the point where they can find a good diviner and and rely on that information and understand the process of divination and what it's for, that is definitely going to put them on the path they need to be on. Because as we said at the very beginning, not everybody needs to be initiated. And if your life is fine and you don't need to get X, Y, or Z, you don't need it. You're fine the way you are. And you don't need to go into the religion thinking like I'm going to acquire, I want to have 30 orishas, you know, and I want to have the fanciest soperas and beautiful decorations. That's great, but that doesn't make you a more devoted orisha worshiper than the poor, simple Cuban who's just got his orishas like in a little clay pot, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we don't, I remember talking to this person and they're like, they gave all of their money to buying things for their Orishas. And, and they're like, well, and the Orishas going to give it back to me like twice as much. But then they were always broke because they were always spending all the money they got on. You know, it's like at a certain point, it's like, you know, you, you, you got to be mindful of like the, the realities of these dynamics. And, you know, and even if the Orishas did reciprocate one of their offerings with, you know, double the amount of, of investment or like, you know, they were so happy they blessed them. That's great. But then when you take that blessing and you turn it and you don't put it to use in the way it's intended, that's not helpful either, right? So That's right. So all that And it's not all about... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's not all about material wealth either because we have to remember that this religion came from, for the most part, very poor people, right? Mm-hmm. And... um People in Cuba, the old people, you know, um, a lot of times they didn't have anything. And if they could go out and buy one apple to give to Chango on their Orisha birthday, that represented a big sacrifice. That's all they could do. 
They weren't going to go get a loan to buy something better, but they spent their money buying that apple for Chungo and they gave it with love. And they spent the whole day sitting there with Chungo and praying and singing and receiving friends and godchildren. And those people are incredibly blessed, even though materially they're poor. They have a really rich spiritual life. And for the most part, they have long life, good health. And they would say that their life is going well, even though from our perspective, it's like, oh my gosh, you don't have anything. You're so poor. Um, they have what they need. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that, I think that you know, it's funny because people have uh, often a very strong re- reaction to the financial mm-hmm. part of the religion, you know, that we have to pay money for these things to happen. and you know, and I get it. It's, it's not always easy, right? You know, it's, it's, it can be a lot of money, especially in North America. I mean, mm-hmm. really anywhere. Um, and in Cuba, it's a lot of money for people who are in Cuba. So, mm-hmm. um, but also it's not, there's people, uh, you know, I almost want to say they're, despite the way in which money plays such a significant role in the tradition, so many of them are less capitalist than, than a lot of people are. They're less caught up in that consumerism. And so they are way more content with doing things and being a part of things and showing up, you know? There are lots of different ways to make sacrifice. You can sacrifice your time. You can give your attention, your, you know, your love. There are many, many ways to show devotion. It doesn't have to all be about money. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Do you got anything else on your list there? Well, I I have a little summary. Yeah, let's 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 hit it. <laughs> okay, because um, we've talked for a long time here. It's been really interesting. But first of all, I guess I want to stress that there's only so much that you can do alone. This is not a religion that you can practice all by yourself. Yes, there's no such thing, in my opinion, as self initiation. And I really don't like it when people just appropriate and steal little parts of our religion mm-hmm. and say, well, I don't like that other part. I'm not going to do that, but I like this little part. I'm going to do this. No, you're either in it or you're not in it. And if you're in it, it means you follow the tradition and the rules of your house. You have to show respect that way, in my opinion. Well, you have to things, have... I want to add to that point. You know, So I live in Toronto. There, there are there are a few other people in the area, but pretty much everybody here travels to do anything of any consequence. So, so you know, there are, there are no oches happening in Toronto. There are no whatever, um, and and so what it means too, like even you know, for me who has dedicated a lot of time to study and to trying to learn the tradition and so on, there's so much that you can only learn by watching somebody do it. And whether that's how you how you peel the stem out of a leaf, or whether that's how you, you know, put things together in a certain way, there's all this knowledge that that's just deeply practical that nobody would ever even think to explain to you, because mm-hmm. you would just see it by being in the room. But when you're mm-hmm. not in the room and you're reading about these things, you can learn a bunch of stuff, but it still doesn't mean that you know how to do anything, which is a really I think important distinction to understand. Oh, absolutely. And, and that was one of my points as well, that if you're geographically isolated from a large Galicia community, you are definitely going to have to either travel a lot 
or move. <laughs> and I feel so bad for people who say, I live in, you know, somewhere in the middle of Nebraska and I want to be initiated. Well, unless they move, I don't think that's going to happen unless they can travel a lot. Mm-hmm. You have to be practical. And, you know, some people live in these isolated communities where there is no Orisha community. And if they can't travel and can't go anywhere and can never participate in anything, there's definitely a limit to how far they can go or what they can do. You do have to be proactive. Like we talked about, you have to get out there and look for opportunities and connections. But at the same time, you have to be really careful that you don't fall into the wrong hands and you have to be patient as things happen in their own way. And sooner or later, at some point, you're going to need a mentor. And usually that turns out to be a godparent who can lead you along because you can only go so far on your own. And I guess my final point, the one that is the most important that I say over and over again, is you just have to have faith that if it's meant to happen, it will happen in the way it's meant to happen, and you can't control the process. Absolutely. I think that 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 is a great summary, and maybe that's a great place to wrap it up. Thank you. So for people who want to, uh, you know, follow, follow along more with what you're doing, how do they how do they connect you know remind us for your website and how do they connect with your your new Facebook project as well okay my website is www.aboutsanteria all one word and no capital letters aboutsanteria.com www.aboutsanteria.com and if people go to that website, there's a little button and it can, you know, click here to contact me and you can write to me and I'll write back. Or you can go on Facebook and we have the About Santeria uh, page where people can find connections on Facebook to what's on the website. And there's also the About Santeria community forum. And that's open to Aleos, non-initiates, as well as priests in the local me. I'm keeping the focus on Lukumi because I'm not qualified to talk about traditional Yoruba and I want the focus to be on Lukumi. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much, Annie, for making time to, to be here. You know, we've been talking about it for a while and I'm really glad that we finally uh, got our time zones coordinated and made everything. (laughs) Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, it's my pleasure. Hi folks. I hope you really enjoyed that podcast. Uh, I think that these conversations are really important in this day and age where uh, everybody has access to information. Um, But, you know, when we're dealing with living traditions, I think that it's uh, a different conversation than when we are uh, reviving deities and practices that have been, uh, well, not continuously practiced since their origin. And I think that, you know, this is an important part of this conversation around appropriation and around respecting uh, other cultures that needs to happen for all those different traditions that are out there. Um, I hope you dig it. I'd super appreciate you sharing it uh, or liking it or all of that kind of jazz. And for anybody who is already interested, I recorded a uh, Patreon bonus for this where I discuss some proverbs and some ideas within the religion from a divination point of view and from uh, stories or Pataki's point of view 
as to what are the uh, pros and cons of overreaching uh, or maybe approaching things with uh, arrogance or other ideas. And that's available for Patreon supporters only. All right, everybody, we'll be back in two weeks with more episodes.